All right, we're going to continue on in our study. Obviously, the big, big study is the book of Proverbs, but we have began, uh, begun to pursue Proverbs in more of a subject matter uh, form. We went chapter by chapter, verse by verse, chapter by chapter for a little while, and now we're looking at sort of broad sweeping categories of focus or emphasis that you find throughout the book of Proverbs. And we started last week with what is a paramount, uh, significant uh, category, and that's the home and family. We're calling this section Foundational Wisdom for Home and Family. We're going to continue on with that focus today. And of course, last week, we sort of took some time to introduce um, this, this category or this subject and to really frame it up in our minds in a way that, that I hope um, produces the appropriate level of impact when we start thinking about a biblical view, or even more specifically, pro- a proverb view of home and family. Um, we talked about how, you know, when you when you look at Scripture, oftentimes those that would criticize uh, more traditional views of home and family uh, oftentimes point to patriarchy. You know, a male-dominated uh, context that Scripture flows out of, or even more specifically, polygamy, where women become objects and multiple wives and these kinds of things. People will pull those kinds of ideas or concepts out of Scripture to basically discount Scripture's authority to speak to the home and the family. And and these two things represent what would be intolerable ideas in our day and time. We're going to talk about that a little more uh, at length when we when we look at Proverbs 31, um, especially this whole issue of um, patriarchy or or the idea of a, social, a society that's, that's oriented toward uh, the male or, or the male line, that kind of thing. And, and we're going to talk about that in the context of, of womanhood as it's described in Proverbs 31 in subsequent weeks. But the fact of the matter is, is that a biblical view or biblical model of the family has been under assault, not just discounted, not just sort of uh, looked down upon, but really under assault for decades now. And, and we had, a, a, I think, a really good discussion around that and, and talking about some of the fruit that we see of that, that assault, some of the ramifications of a biblical model for home and family being sort of gradually disintegrated in our culture, in our world, in our sort of experience <clears throat> uh, here in our, our society. And the, the impact is significant. Of course, <clears throat> you could... Take a moment and Google statistics on this and search for, you know, statistics on the breakdown of the family or statistics on marriage or statistics on uh, um, fatherless households or those kinds of things. And it's overwhelming. I mean, this is not some surprise. This is not some new piece of information. Um, this has been going on for some time. And yet we are now living in a day and time where we've got multiple generations of this persistent breakdown that are now playing itself out in institutional ways. It's playing itself out in educational systems. It's playing itself out in uh, political environments. It's playing itself out in news and media and entertainment. All kinds of facets of life in our society are impacted by this multi-generational sort of disintegration and even all-out assault on family structure, on family value, on family priority. And of course, we sort of looked at this initially from the standpoint that Proverbs puts forward 
not some kind of irrelevant, ancient, Old Testament, patriarchal kind of uh, imbalanced, um, unequal view of the family, but rather Proverbs further supports and upholds the creation ideal of the family. It, it, it clearly does that in a really effective and practical way. And so we can benefit greatly by thinking about marriage and family and home, even from the standpoint of just looking at Proverbs and what it says about uh, these, this, this important category. We talked about how even when you look at the, the, the purpose of home and family as it's put forward, it is the environment, of course, for producing offspring. And the creation ideal, obviously, it's oriented toward filling the earth, but it's also the environment for instruction, for preparing children to grow up and be contributors to society, and more importantly, to be those who uphold God's moral law, those that, that think around what is true and right about God's law. And we read from actually Exodus chapter 20 and looked at the Ten Commandments and how it even, it even speaks to this, this priority within that context but when you think about just the, the commandments themselves and what is articulated there in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 18, and you think about what a parental responsibility is, what, what parental instruction looks like, it's really focused on training children to understand transcendent moral law as it's succinctly and clearly and yet comprehensively outlined for us, even in the Decalogue. So we, we, we kind of set that as a, as a framework or a backdrop for, for our thinking on marriage and family and how uh, Proverbs does a phenomenal job of holding up this creation ideal and providing practical application and instruction around marriage, home, and family in a way that I think is uniquely helpful um, in, in, in terms of looking at Scripture's teaching on this important subject. And the bottom line is, is that we... As we think about this, as we, as we look at what's happened in our society and this multi-generational slide and the effects that we're seeing just day by day, as you watch the news, you look at media, you look at what's popular, you look at trends and culture and all that, and, and you see the effects of that, and when you look at Scripture and the weight that it puts on the responsibilities of home and family life, of marital relationship and 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 the building of society by extension and the importance of that, we need to be very sober-minded about this discussion, about this study. And any time throughout the seasons of our lives that we are confronted with teaching on, biblical teaching on marriage, home, and family, we ought to have our ears up. We ought to have our radar up. We ought to be listening carefully. We ought to be trying to understand more and more What does God want to teach me? What do I need to understand? What do I need to repent of? How do I need to apply biblical truth more effectively at this season of my life? Because is it not indeed true that we can often think of the most common and familiar passages that that focus on husband and wife relationships or on parenting or those kinds of issues surrounding marriage and family, and we've heard them before. We've heard them taught before. We've read books about them. We've been in small group discussion around them, all that kind of thing. And it is, because of that, we're indicating that it is a priority for us. But we can often kind of gloss over and glaze over the insignificance of it when we hear it once again. 
And so I, I just wanted, it, for me, it was helpful to just kind of think about this in a new way to say, you know what, every time I hear more teaching on marriage and home and family, I'm probably at a different season or stage in my own life in, in the context of my marriage and our home and where our family is or maybe how old the kids are or what's going on in our extended family. I mean, there's, there's something probably new and different and unique about that season, and I should be listening very intently and not thinking, well, you know, I understand the implications of this, and I've, I've thought through this well enough. The fact of the matter is, is it's of paramount importance, and it has implications that reach down into the generations. Like what we're doing in the context of our homes and families not only has implications for eternity in the, context, in, in the sense that we are basically providing spiritual formation and planting the seeds of the gospel in the hearts and the minds of children, but also they're thinking about their place in this world and their contribution to upholding God's law and God's rule in society and what that should look like. So this is a hugely significant subject for us to be looking at. And the first little subcategory that we talk, began to talk about last week, we didn't get very far, is the, the focus of the relationship of husband and wife. So we're going to break this down into husband and wife, of parent and children. We're going to break it down into a few subcategories sub here. And the first one, obviously, is the relationship of husband and wife. And the first sort of principle from Proverbs that we looked at last time that I want to kind of reiterate and maybe expand on a little bit today is this, that husband and wife, as Proverbs presents this relationship, they both share in the training of children and are assumed to speak with one voice. Now, this is in stark contrast to what would be you know, common thinking about what life in a patriarchal society might look like, where you know, the women are sort of like, um, you know, they're sort of like property, and they really don't have a voice, and they really don't have a say, because the men, are the, men, the men are the ones who speak for the family, they speak for the home, they speak in the body politic, they're the ones that are the influencers of society. The women don't really have a say or a voice, but Proverbs puts forward this, this model Again, hearkening back to the creation ideal, where both share in the training responsibilities of children and both are assumed to speak with one voice. And we looked at Proverbs 1, 8 to 9, where both father and mother's instruction is held up as valuable. And, and don't, you know, don't forsake, uh, hear, my fa- hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And again, sort of a repeat of the same refrain in Proverbs 6, verses 20 to 22. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. The plural of the commandments of the father and the mother's teaching. They will lead you when you lie down when you wa- and they will watch over you when you awake. They will talk with you. This, this joining together of the priority of father and mother as a unified front in the instruction and training, and a unified voice. And we talked about some of the practical implications of that last time and how, how simply put, um, effective biblical family dynamic and even marriage and marital relationship and fellowship can be turned sideways or even broken down significantly sheerly by the fact that we don't approach it from this kind of viewpoint. And we begin to allow, for example, our kids to divide us, right? We're not speaking with one voice in the context of parenting. We're not a unified front. And, and our children begin to divide us against one another. 
And oftentimes that can happen unwittingly and unknowingly. And, 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 we allow, and then we, we provide that open door. And so the, the practical point is don't allow yourselves to be divided when it comes to the instruction of children. One voice, both share in it. It is not the domain of just the mom who stays at home. It is not the domain of just the dad who is the you know, strong authority figure. He's the disciplinarian. That is not the biblical model. It is a shared responsibility. Certainly there are roles and responsibilities. Certainly there are issues of temperament and strengths and weaknesses that come together in that environment. But in general, the principle is it's a shared responsibility. And the assumption is, is that both are speaking words of truth and life into that instructional process with their children. And that voice is not being divided, either inadvertently or intentionally. We as parents and husbands and wives must protect that unity in our homes. Yes? I think children are very tuned in to what the relative strengths and weaknesses are of the parents, and that's how they play one against the other. You sound like you have some experience with that. Maybe we should... You know, we made, we made that point last week about, we called, I just said that they can be very crafty in their approach, um, very, very shrewd in their approach um, to that. And so um, we have to be very, very mindful of that and intentional about protecting that. That's a, sanct- that's a sanctified zone, if you will. We've got to be very vigilant about protecting. And oftentimes, just as a practical matter, and I'm sure that many of you can attest to this, I mean, there are times when that, that kind of can be underway and, um, I mean, my wife and I, I think we've disagreed like twice in our marriage. So I just want to make sure you, so you, sure you, know, you know how perfect it is. It's, we've never disagreed except for maybe once or twice. But on those one or two occasions, I'm kidding. You guys know I'm kidding. But on those occasions, the times when we have maintained a unified front before our kids, even when we might have a different perspective on what practically needs to happen, either in the context of discipline or maybe a request that they're making to be able to do something or go somewhere or whatever it might be, the times where we have reserved those uh, disagreements for behind closed doors, it's way more fruitful and productive both for the marriage and for the children than those moments where mainly my wife, I have to say, she's been the one. No. <laughs> when we have, you know, she's in the room, that's why I do that, you know that, right? When we have uh, failed to speak with one voice and we've done that in front of our kids, that's a disaster. That's just a disaster. So I think that this principle, that's why I love Proverbs. How intensely practical is this? And then Jesus actually issued the same kind of principle in a different context in Matthew when he's being you know, accused by the Pharisees of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And he just makes the point that's ridiculous. That's a, that's a silly notion. And he says this, no house divided against itself will stand. Same principle, different context, different application, but it's the same fundamental wisdom principle. No house divided against itself will stand. So we as husbands and wives need to be a unified front at all times in our homes. Well, the second uh, principle from Proverbs regarding the relationship of husband and wife that I would highlight and again, you've got to know we're not covering the entire waterfront here. We're just sort of kind of doing a, a bit of a summary. But the second principle is this. Husbands are not merely called to be dutifully loyal to their wives, 
but are exhorted to passionately cherish them. And let's understand and be clear on that distinction. We are called as husbands to be loyal to our wives, but ramp it up a bunch of notches is the, is the proverb model. That we're called not just to be loyal, but to, be, but to passionately cherish our wives. Again, uh, we've looked at this previously, but in chapter 5, as Solomon instructing his son, he's culminating this instruction uh, in his warnings, really. He's warning his son about the, the sort of this intoxicating yet deadly allurement of this forbidden woman, this, this, this woman who would tempt him into sin. And he prescribes in that context what is probably one of the most formidable defenses against marital infidelity. And here's what he says in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 to 19. Again, this is the context here is warning against being tempted by the allurements of this adulteress. And he says to his son in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15, Drink water from your own cistern, your own wife, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? There's an element of like, forbid it. May it never be. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That is an exhortation for husbands to not just maintain disciplined loyalty in the marriage. It is an exhortation for husbands to intentionally work at passionately cherishing and valuing their wives at all times. Even when the the fires of romance are not burning. In other words, the indication here, the, certainly the context does lend itself toward uh, the, the intimacy of marriage. But the principle remains that at all times we should be cultivating this kind of cherishing love and devotion, not just a duty bound in the, in, you know, by my sheer force of will, I'm going to maintain fidelity in my marriage. And just, I mean, and that's going to be sort of my job because I've got discipline and I'm resolved to do that. No, there is a, there's an exhortation for husbands to cherish them and to, to do it with, with intention and with passion and with vigor. That, that's the principle. What, what a defense that presents against the subtleties and the allurements of temptation. If, if husbands are preoccupied with the intoxicating love of their own cistern, their own wife, their own home, their own family, their own spouse, it surely does blunt, it seems to, it seems to me that it, that would certainly blunt the efforts of temptation to sort of draw you away and lead you astray as a husband. My mind is focused on this. My mind is intentional about this. I am preoccupied with this priority in my home and my marriage. It's something that I 
I work at and I diligently pursue. And I love the way that Solomon puts this in Proverbs in the context of it being a defense against infidelity. It's a great way to put that. Husbands are not merely called to be dutifully loyal to their wives, but are exhorted to passionately cherish them. Well, let's look at the wife. A good wife, this is the third principle, a good wife is a gift from the Lord. And she has the capacity, and I put in parentheses in my little outline here, the power to be a profound blessing and a source of stability for her husband and family. Again, thinking about this idea of a patriarchal society and how it diminishes the influence of women, it it totally sets them aside. This is a completely different vision here. The vision that Proverbs has is one of a wife who is a gift with tremendous influence, tremendous power to be a blessing and a source of of amazing stability in the home and in the family and, and to her husband. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4, says this, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. But listen to this. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. That's pretty profound influence, is it not? Proverbs 18.22 He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Wives are a blessing from God. And, and, and wives should view themselves this way. I, I think that this is not just about the, the effects of a good wife, the, the effects that a good wife can bring to the husband, the benefits that a good wife can bring to the husband. It's also about how a wife identifies herself in the context of that marriage. That I am meant to be a gift and a blessing here. That's like, that's part of who I am in this relationship. And the fact of the matter is, is that if I'm, if I'm not that, then I could potentially be, be bringing shame. I could be bringing rottenness to the bones. That, that's, that's, the, that's the extent of my potential influence here as a wife in this home. It's, it's substantial. So there's this idea that there's an understanding of a sense of identity of who the wife is in the, in the home and to her husband. That she's a crown and she's, she's a, a gift and that she's part of how the Lord shows His favor to a husband. Like being a part of that channel of blessing from God himself to that husband and to that home and to that family. That's, that's significant. That's massive in its import. It should not be understated. Proverbs 19, verse 14. Another good practical comparison. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. In other words, men can value worldly riches all they want, but it pales in comparison to the gift of a prudent, a wise wife who comes from the one who actually created and owns it all. So of all the good gifts that the one who creates and owns all of it could give, 
in addition to wealth and houses and property and all the material possessions that we have. This highlights the fact that it is a wife, a prudent wife, that is unmatched by comparison. It's from the Lord. Proverbs 14.1, again, thinking of the stability factor, the, the way that a, a wife and a mother brings stability, the power that they have to bring stability into the home. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. That is incredible influence. That's, that's astounding authority and power. The statement of building up or tearing down and the placement of that power and authority into the hands, into the heart, into the mind, into the will of a wife and a mom is substantial. And we're going to look at Proverbs 31 in much more detail, but just to kind of sample a few verses from that. Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 12. An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. Again, think of this in contrast to this this distorted notion of male-dominated patriarchy that has no interest in what the woman thinks. This is a totally different picture. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. This is all centering on the contribution of the wife to this relationship in this marriage. Verse 12, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Proverbs 31, 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Well, this context makes it clear. He's known partly in the gates and among the elders. In other words, his reputation is fortified. It's strengthened. It's enhanced amongst the leaders of the community based upon her. Based upon her strength, her stature, her wisdom, her conduct. Substantial. And then the the concluding section there in Proverbs chapter 31, verses 26 to 29. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. And here's what he says, Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. That is, that is the power of the, the, the woman, the wife, the mom, in the context of the marriage and the home. That is the influence It is a tremendous capacity for being a blessing, a source of blessing and favor from the Lord himself to that husband and to that home and to that family. It is no small thing. It is no second-class citizen kind of idea or model. It is no diminishment picture at all. It's significant. So when you think about this, looking at it from a more darker standpoint, Proverbs does that as well. This is the fourth principle or or idea or concept we see in Proverbs, highlighting this relationship of marriage and family. Proverbs portrays marital infidelity in the vilest of terms. And And it 
articulates these sweeping and grim consequences for it. So in other words, if this patriarchal, Old Testament, irrelevant model was focused on the insignificance or diminishment, for example, of women as a particular construct, I don't know that it would necessarily paint such a dark, grim picture of infidelity and its consequences. But it does. Derek Kidner says this, Against so high a view of marriage, sexual sin is presented in the darkest colors. So let's look at that. What, what is infidelity in Proverbs? How is it characterized? Well, first, it is a squandering of the divine blessings and privileges reserved for faithful marriages and families. It is a, it is a complete and utter waste of those blessings. It's a squandering of God's good gift of marriage and home and family in the context of his law and his will and his purposes. It's a complete throwing it away setting it aside as invaluable, or not valuable, I should say. Proverbs 5, verses 8 to 12, gives us some, some description of that. Proverbs 5, verses 8 to 12, says this, Keep your way far from her. Again, speaking of this adulteress, this, this forbidden woman, as, as she's described. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others. Again, think of the squandering implications here, of the wasteful implications. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. This is a picture of of a completely wasted life. Wasted on infidelity that gives this grand promise of satisfaction, but is vacuous in the end. So it's a, it's a wasting of the blessings and privileges that are reserved for faithful marriages and families. It's also an empty facade and a total trap. That's how Proverbs describes it. In other words, when you look at Proverbs, what you see is you see something that looks really, really nice on the front, but then you get closer and you realize it's just a facade. If any of you have ever been, um, has any, have any of you ever been around a, kind of a, a production set, a movie set, or a TV set, or uh, you know, and you've seen these facades, and, and you've been you, those of you been to California, lived in California, and I mean they they look, but they look. From the standpoint of the camera and the camera angles, I mean, they look like thriving, bustling cities. They look like, I mean, whatever they're supposed to look like, they look very real. But when you go around to the other side of them, oftentimes they're just, they're held up by planks, right? I mean, they're just, it's like this total facade. And that's sort of the image that you have of infidelity in Proverbs. It, it's, it looks really good from a certain angle. Don't, don't, make, don't make any mistake. In fact, Solomon's instruction to his son, it, it actually emphasizes the power of the allurement. It doesn't, it doesn't sweep it under the rug as, you know, just, just ignore it. 
don't worry about it. It's not real. Just move on. No, it, it actually talks about it in very vivid terms. Like her tongue is like the drippings of honey. I mean, there's this, there's this enticing ability to allure and draw you in. It's very descriptive in its power to entice, but it's a total facade. It looks fantastic only from a certain very contrived angle. But behind it, there's nothing there. And in fact, behind it is a pit, a deep, narrow pit that if you fall into it, you may not be able to get out. You may be trapped. That's, that's how Proverbs describes it. It's an empty facade and a foolish trap. Well, let's look at that. Actually, Kidner has a good quote about this too. He says, it is an exchange of true intimacy for its parody, for its comic you know, joke of a script, if you will. It's not real. It's, it's sort of drawing upon the actual and some of its elements and then making a farce of it in the end. Proverbs chapter 5, the second part of verse 19. We've already looked at the first part of that, where it's this whole chapter, this whole section on, uh, on avoiding the temptation of the forbidden woman. And again, this instruction for us to cherish our wives intentionally and passionately. In the second half of Proverbs chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Be intoxicated always in her love. And then it says, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? In other words, this is a, this is a facade. You've got the real thing. He just got finished describing that, that true, your own cistern, being be intoxicated with her love always. Why on earth would you go for the facade? Why would you, my son, be intoxicated with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an, of an adulteress? Verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his path. So that's reality. You want to know reality? It's like, it's like bookmarks in this. It's like, it's like bookends, I should say. Bookends on, on a bookshelf here. On one side of the equation, you've got the true, intimate, thrilling gift of marriage, of your own sister and your own wife. And on the other side, you have this ultimate, transcendent reality that everything you do is before the eyes of the Lord who sees everything. So you've got reality both temporally in the, in the form of your actual wife, and you've got reality transcendently in the form of the God who sees all. And he asks this question, why on earth would you be intoxicated by this? This great contrast that he puts forward here. It's, it's a facade. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. It's a trap. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. And then another image we have in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 27 to 28. For a prostitute is a deep pit. An adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a pit. It's a narrow well. It's a deep pit. It's a narrow well. Don't be fooled. You have 
the temporal reality right before you, and you have transcendent reality compelling you. Don't fall for the facade, and don't fall into this trap. That's how Proverbs use this. It also is put forward, this, this sin of infidelity and, and defiling the marriage bed. It brings dishonor, disgrace, potential physical harm, and financial ruin to the offender. Listen to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 23 to 35, and think about what it says about dishonor and disgrace and physical harm and financial ruin. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 23 to 35. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. So you have this picture here of a married woman tempting the son into an illicit affair, and all that that would entail, all the fruit of that engagement. He even uses some very coarse metaphors or examples to make the point. For example, he says, um, verse 25, or excuse me, verse 26, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. In other words, he's saying, you know, the, you're talking about something that is, is so insane. The consequences are going to be so great. And he's drawing this comparison to, you know, in terms of cost. A prostitute is only a loaf of bread. There's arguments amongst commentators is, well, is this an endorsement of prostitution? You know, guys, if you're tempted, you know, it'd be much cheaper and much more cost effective to go this way than that way. No, he's drawing a, compar- a stark contrast by saying, look, this kind of, of illicit behavior is only costs this much. You're talking about something that's going to cost your life. And he, and he talks about this in the context of also the, the price that you'll pay, even with physical harm. I mean, someone else's wife. You could go, you could become actually physically injured. And the financial consequences are substantial, trying to, to pay your way out of it. It's an, it's an empty hole. He'll refuse you, though you multiply gifts. And there's dishonor, and there's disgrace, and he says it will not be wiped away. This is a very, very morbid, unflattering picture of this kind of engagement. It brings dishonor, disgrace, 
potential physical harm and financial ruin. Now, if any of you have, have had any, any effect of this kind of, um, this kind of thing on any, anyone in your home or family or friends, um, I, I, would, I would assume that you can understand this passage. I can, vividly. Some extended family issues in our, in our lives, and it, it's a disaster. And again, going back to the prior point, it's a facade with a big trap behind it. That's what it is. And then finally, it is no, it's no mere detour off the ideal path. In other words, Proverbs doesn't put forward infidelity in marriage as just sort of a detour of just sort of a waywardness. It actually characterizes it as even a flirtation with death itself. It's, it's that graphic. It's that dramatic. In Proverbs chapter 2, verses 16 to 19, you may remember Proverbs chapter 2 begins with this, um, basically this appeal for the pursuit of wisdom, appeal to the Son to both value wisdom and pursue wisdom as though it's treasure. You pursue it and you go after it as though it's something of, of tremendous value. And he, he also talks about the value of wisdom and what it produces or what it brings, the gifts that wisdom brings when it's pursued and when it's obtained. And then you get down to verse 16 of chapter 2, and one of the safeguards of wisdom is protecting, again, protecting the son in this context from the entrapment of the forbidden woman. And it says this in verse 16. So, again, you gain insight, you gain wisdom by pursuing it and valuing it. So, you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. I mean, this picture of infidelity in marriage just gets more and more grim the further you go. It gets more and more dark. And so if you were looking at a model of husband and wife relationship, of of marriage in the context of an Old Testament book like Proverbs, it is by far any kind of model that would diminish the value of women that would be focused on male prowess, male dominance, or anything of the sort. And this last point of putting anything that would diminish or devalue the marriage relationship as it's instituted by God on display in such dark, destructive, and even ultimately deadly colors makes that point by stark contrast. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that when you look in Scripture, and of course we go to the New Testament, and what do we see? We see this great model of marriage put on display for us as well and brought into a gospel context. And this this beauty of husband and wife relationship being a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And this is Old Testament 
foundation, Old Testament teaching of the same sort. This is wisdom instruction fortifying the priority and importance and significance of God-honoring marriage and family relationship between husband and wife. It is the environment in which children for generations future are instructed in the ways of the Lord, in the law of the Lord, and, and really what purpose in life is all about. If you and I, we talked about this last week, if you and I and our children were created by God for His glory, then the only way that they are going to know and understand what their purpose for existence is, is to understand that in reference to their Maker. And so the home and the family provides the environment in which not only can you instruct those children to be contributors to society because they understand transcendent, unchangeable tenets of moral conduct and its consequences and its benefits and its blessings, but they also learn and understand transcendent principles of purpose as those created by God and for God. And so this relationship of husband and wife as the principal providers of that kind of instruction, that kind of environment in the home, in a shared one-voice context, and the priority of the husband to cherish, passionately cherish, the wife, and the wife to recognize her power and influence as a blessing, as one who provides life and stability to her husband and to her children in that home, and to recognize that anything, anything that would come between that, that important institution that God puts together in home and family, anything such as marital sin of infidelity in the marriage that would diminish that, is looked upon in the darkest ways, in the grimmest ways, with the most significant, far-reaching consequences. Proverbs holds up for us this tremendous model of marriage in the husband and wife relationship. And for that, I'm truly thankful. Any final thoughts or comments before we pray and are dismissed? I kind of didn't give you any opportunity to, to contribute. I'm sorry, I get on a roll when I start talking about this subject I'm pretty passionate about. Anyone? All right, well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.